This episode of Breaking Brave is brought to you by Soul Snacks. Soul Snacks are single ingredient, eco-conscious dog and cat treats sourced directly from farms in Ontario and wrapped in fully compostable packaging. Treating your pets never felt so good. Use coupon code BREAKINGBRAVE for 15% off on soulsnacks.ca. That's soulsnacks.ca. This episode is also brought to you by Crank Coffee, the newest member of the Neal Brothers family. Crank Coffee is a new Canadian whole bean coffee brand that is certified organic and fair trade, founded by the Neal Brothers, Peter and Chris. This brand was influenced by cycling, coffee lovers, and experts. Check it out at the Neal Brothers online shop and use our coupon code BRAVE for 20% off your first Crank Coffee purchase. Enjoy. Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Today, my guest is Anne Leary, New York Times best-selling author who has just released her brand new novel called The Foundling. The Foundling is the most timely novel because when it comes to the regulation of women's bodies and the criminalization of sex and reproductive practices, it really would be hard to pick a time when a novel like Anne's wouldn't speak to where we find ourselves right now. For Anne Leary, writing The Foundling was a way of exploring our nation's history with respect to eugenics, but also of exploring the story of her own family. This is a very brave story about a dark chapter in our history. Please welcome the brilliant Anne Leary. Today, I have the incredible honor of chatting with Anne Leary on a very important day. Well, actually, on a very important day before a day. So, Anne Leary is a New York Times bestselling author of the following books so far The Good House, The Children, Outtakes from a Marriage, and Innocent Abroad. And as of tomorrow, May 31st, 2022, The Foundling will be available for sale. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Breaking Brave, Anne. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here on the eve of my book's publication. <laughs> exactly. It's It must be a very exciting day for you. I mean, I don't know. Maybe we should start there. Why don't we talk about what does the day of a publication look like for you personally? Is it just nuts or is it really quiet? You know, what's funny is I just finished an essay for uh, Lit Hub, which is an online publication um, about today and about how anxious it is this day before your book launches. And this book more than any other for me, um, I think for various reasons, um, one of one is that I haven't had a book out in a few years. It took me six years to write this book, and I've been researching it for about 10 years. So I really love to write, but I don't like promoting and you know self-bragging and kind of like constant, like shoving what I've written down the throats of my friends on social media <laughs> and the public. So um, that part, you know, is getting, that part is hard for me. And also this is um, a book that, again, it's, it's, it's different. So it's, it's a historical fiction novel that I have not written a novel that wasn't contemporary fiction before. And it's um, loosely based on my grandmother, who I found out about a decade ago worked um, as a secretary when she was 17 years old in a an asylum in central Pennsylvania called the Laurelton State Village for Feeble-Minded Women of Childbearing Age. And I um, thought it was a pretty shocking name for a place, a government institution. It was not very nice. It's I, I was pretty sure it was a home for women with intellectual disabilities. But what I came to learn was it was actually a eugenics asylum that I, I I thought the word feeble-minded was a dreadful thing to have in the name, but actually in those days, the word feeble-minded, as, as well as the words idiot, imbecile, and moron were actually clinical terms used, you know, by doctors to uh, kind of classify varying degrees of intellectual disabilities. But the really offensive part of the name of that asylum was 
of childbearing age because it wasn't really a place one went to get training or therapy for anything. It was a place to warehouse what they called morally defective women. You know, if you were considered a morally um, unsound individual in those days, that classified you as feeble-minded. And if you were poor, like my grandmother, uh, you could be sent to a place like this and you wouldn't be allowed to leave until you reach menopause. My grandmother actually wasn't an inmate there. She worked, she worked there. But I was obsessed from the minute I found out about the place. I, I went through a kind of arc that I, I then tried to take the reader through in my book where I, I didn't quite understand it at first. And I was very much impressed with um, the place. It's quite beautiful, the, the grounds of the asylum. And then the woman who ran it was very impressive, the real woman. Um, and so eventually decided I really wanted to write this novel. And when I started writing it, I tried, that was what I tried to do was um, have the reader uh, come to it the way I did. It it looks pretty nice at the beginning. (laughs) So full disclosure, I did not have any idea that these types of places ever, ever, ever existed. And you're not alone. Very few people are, I don't know how old you are, but <laughs> very few people. I'm 62. Okay. I'm so 62. you're, yeah, we're this, about the same age. Actually, I find more Canadians know about these places than, because you had them up there. <laughs> but um, yeah. they. I, I feel like I know, I, it seems to me that maybe Canadians were taught it more in school than people from the United States. Certainly we didn't, we were never taught about the eugenics movement of the early 20th century, which was a huge movement. It wasn't um, a fringe uh, radical hate group, which I think people now think it was. It was very mainstream. PBS uh, in the United States did a wonderful uh uh, special on um, a series called The American Experience. And they did, it was called The Eugenics Crusade. Anyone, you can stream it. It's fascinating. But there's many, many books, many scholarly articles, many, there's lots. I've, you know, been researching this for a long time. But it really, though many people have never heard of eugenics today, in my grandmother's day, it was a household word. Everyone knew about it. It wasn't a secret. And so that's that was another thing. I should probably qualify what I said earlier in that it doesn't it's not doesn't seem that great at the beginning when, you know, Mary goes to see this lecture by the doctor who she might go to work for. And she's talking about feeble minded women. And, you know, it doesn't sound that nice by today's standards. But Nothing that she said and nothing that really was said or was published in newspapers in those days, things that today are are blatantly, like overtly racist and misogynistic and um, xenophobic, people were out with it. There weren't dog whistles. (laughs) There was a lot of fear and loathing of the other. And that's what eugenics was really all about, unfortunately. And I had heard the word. So here was the other part of the big learning was I'd heard the word, but I I didn't understand fully what it meant. And so Laurelton, where your grandmother worked, what where the story was essentially inspired from, I understand warehoused is a great word, but if you were married and your husband thought you were a problem, mm-hmm. you could be dumped. If you weren't married, but your father thought you were a problem, you could be dumped. Or if you were pregnant and not in not married, you could be dumped. So any kind of rebellious person, woman, you're warehoused there until the possibility of you, you know, creating devil spawn out there in the world (laughs) is over with. Right. So yeah, a few things. First of all, I I always loved the decade of the 1920s, like the roaring 20s. And I always thought of it as a time of decadence. And I thought women were like kind of sexually liberated. And I, I you always think of the flappers. You know, I always think of Zelda Fitzgerald and kind of these mm. Dorothy Parker characters in her stories. Those are the rich women of the 1920s. <laughs> If you were rich, you could have lovers. If you weren't married, you could go to speakeasies. You know, it was illegal to drink alcohol in America in those days, in the United States. Um, 
you could do many things and you might be considered wonderfully extravagant or, you know, kind of devil may care. But if you were poor, you were seen as a menace to society. And that was because these pioneers in the science, quote unquote, I've got, I'm doing air quotes here, of yeah. eugenics, Francis Galton, um, Charles Davenport, um, the Goddard, there's these, uh, there were these scientists who were doctors who, um, were very much convinced that the cure to most of society's ills were um, to be found in eugenics. Um, they believed that some people were just born to be a burden to the rest of society. They, it, it really was this um, idea that you could create a better world, you could create uh, a, a superior human race simply by preventing inferior people, and they meant races of people and um, types of people, um, from having children and encouraging superior people. And those were, quote, you know, Nordic, the whitest of white mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. to have mm -hmm. more children. And so that was just kind of, it seems very simplistic, but it was kind of wonderful because it was something that everyone could understand. It, it, it didn't need yeah. much, you know. So again, even though now we know little about it. And I, I have a, I have a theory. I don't think it's, I don't think I'm the only one that thinks this about why we don't know about it, why no one talks about it. And why my grandmother never told anyone, as far as we know, that she worked there or, or about what it was, the place really was at one time. Um, but I think at the time it wasn't, there was nothing wrong with it. It was very much, um, my grandmother wouldn't have been ashamed to work there at the time because Eugenics was embraced by everyone from the president who signed in our 1924 Immigration Act, which basically banned people who weren't very white from coming to our country. Um, but Theodore Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, George Bernard Shaw, Virginia Woolf, I could go on and on, Alexander Graham Bell, Margaret Sanger. You know, these people did wonderful things for society. And every one that I just mentioned was like... Um, over, you know, was very like outspoken in their um, belief in eugenics and in their very kind of what we would call racist ideologies. So for years, as I've been working on this, people have had, you know, people have read it and I've had this kind of reaction of people saying, well, why would your grandmother work in such a place? Or why, how, she must have been quite naive to not know what it was when she went to work there. And i I feel like I, I get where they're coming from because I was naive when I first came to this as researching it. I too thought, why would she work in a place like that? That's how naive I was about what options were available to a person like my grandmother in the 1920s. My grandmother was an orphan. She had no money. It was illegal to not work, to be a vagrant in those days. It was illegal to, um, you know, basically, you know, everything, everything that we were, when we were my grandmother's age, was was kind of morally uh, wrong or defective in those days. So what, poor women were very vulnerable. They weren't hopping off to speakeasies. They were looking for jobs. And this would have been a really, uh, a job, you know, it's, it's a, a, a government asylum for women raised run by a woman. So it would have been considered a very safe and a very respectable place for a young woman to work. A woman like my grandmother raised by nuns in an orphanage. And eugenics was so mainstream that why wouldn't this be a great job? Absolutely. Right. Everybody around you had embraced it. So what's your theory then, Anne, when you said you have a theory as to why your grandma maybe didn't, your grandma didn't talk about it. It didn't tell anybody that she worked there. Well, that part is a theory, but it is a fact that the eugenics movement for how widespread and popular it was, was very short-lived. And the reason mm. why is because it uh, it was, man, many people do know this, that Adolf Hitler, while he was in prison before he came to power, read one of the, I think it was Charles Davenport's book on eugenics and um, based many of his beliefs in um the, you know, superior and inferior races on theories that were developed by American eugenicists. And I, um, and I, it's not, I'm, I'm not the only one that thinks this. What happened um, was that throughout the 1920s, it was a popular belief and many scientists 
you know, we're believing in this idea of social Darwinism, but then scientists really who were doing studies started to realize it wasn't as simple as uh, these early proponents had made it seem. And they were kind of, the, the scientists were kind of pulling away, but the American public was still embracing it until World War II, because as we know, the final solution for eugenics was the Holocaust. And the first, uh, the first population that was uh, euthanized, as they said, and in Germany were the feeble-minded. They were actually the intellectually disabled. I didn't know that. Um, I didn't know that yeah. until you just said that. I had no idea. But I mean, again, the feeble-minded, it was such a range. You could basically, anyone who was, anyone who did something odd might have, you could easily call them a feeble-minded person. And certain eugenicists, certainly Adolf Hitler, considered all Jewish people feeble-minded. You know, certain races were feeble-minded just because they were that race. Basically, the Nordic people were the only people who weren't feeble-minded. So what happened was, I think, that was at the end of the war, after the horrors that the world saw. I know the place where my grandmother worked went through serious reforms and became a very different place. And it actually stayed open until the 1990s. It became a true training school for individuals with serious um intellectual disabilities. And I've had conversations with people who worked there and whose parents worked there and who who loved their work, who were proud of their work. So I also don't want, I don't ever want to tarnish the, what the school, the place later became, but there are asylums like that one all over our country that later became places where people have family members who received very quality care there. But um, so I think that's what happened. Um, and I think when I said theory, I just think that's maybe why my mother, my grandmother, and probably others who worked there at the time wouldn't, at a certain point, say they worked at a place that, you know, I know, my mother said she used to say she worked for the government. Mm. I thought that was cool. <laughs> I thought she was maybe a spy yeah, or something. And that's but, a pretty broad answer. Yeah, she did. Work. She It wasn't a lie. She worked for the government, but. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Here's a fact that I just, and, and then we can certainly move off of the whole eugenics, racial hygiene situation. <laughs> I read, and that's why I'm looking up at my wall, that in North Carolina, the government sponsored the forced sterilization of black women until the 1970s. Yes. So a lot of Americans do associate eugenics with the forced sterilization of black uh Americans, especially in the South, because and uh, not just blacks. There was a famous the, the the case that went to the Supreme Court was the Buck v. Bell case, which she was a, a white woman, but it was predominantly black people and people in marginalized um, communities who were sterilized, usually against their will, but often even without their knowing it, they would think they were going in to get their appendix taken out if it was a woman, and she'd come out having her tubes tied. This was not. Um, unusual. And it, it was a just, and yes, that did continue on, unfortunately, as other eugenics practices did into the 60s and 70s, is shockingly. We had laws that prohibited marriage between the races. And in some states in the South, those continued on. Those were eugenics laws. And is this, Anne, your first historical fiction novel? Yes, so it is. So, yeah, I, I originally, I wanted to, I originally thought I'd write it as a nonfiction kind of journey of discovery. Mm-hmm. But my grandmother lived until I was in my 30s. But the last time I saw her, I was about eight years old. She and my mother did not get along well at all, ever. And they had to, um, eventually they became estranged from one another. My grandmother was very, was very unwell. She had a very traumatic childhood, working at this asylum where she did for at least three years, had to have had some kind of, um, you know, traumatic influence on her. She had, she had a very unhappy, very unhappy life. So anyway, I, I was unable to find out much about her through, the kind of oral histories, which most people would. My mom's still alive. She had nothing for me. She doesn't... I found out so much about my grandmother online. I found out through Ancestry.com. I found out through newspaper archives. The little local newspapers in the, you know, the countryside in America in that time, they were... It was the Facebook of that time. People would place in the newspaper, Mrs. My grandmother's name was Rauschmeyer. Mary Rauschmeyer had tea with blah, blah, blah. Everything they did, or they, their, their mother was visiting from out of town. So 
I got to see a lot about my grandmother. Uh, I, I learned a lot about a person who I've been fascinated by, I guess because my last lack of access to her and little things I'd heard had made me hurt me fascinated by her all my life. So, yeah, so I, I so I, I was interested in filling in the blanks of the story about her, but I was really interested in two other characters that are in the novel. One is Lillian, and maybe I, should I just give the kind of... Heavy? Oh, yes, yeah. I would love that because okay. I... Yeah, let's do your synopsis, yeah. if you want to call it that. Yeah. Just give me the storyline because I want everybody listening to buy it. So everything I just said was really about the background of the story and the kind of real history of my grandmother and my family. But The Foundling, the novel, is uh, the story of two young women, Mary and Lillian, who grow up together in the same orphan asylum, as it was called in those days. They call That's what they called orphanages. And they meet again as young adults in a different kind of asylum. But now they're no longer ward mates. Mary is the secretary to the very charismatic female doctor who runs the place. And Lillian is an inmate being confined in the institution against her will. So that's the tension of the story. It's kind of where the story begins and ends, but there's so much more in it. There's a lot that goes on. Um, it's not also the, the the cover of the book makes it look very scary, and it sounds really grim. But I think it's I really did try to add or kind of um, include some of the fun of the jazz era in it, it, it because the characters who worked at the asylum and other characters, you know, when, the, when uh, there was a lot besides just the inmates in the asylum. So I tried to make it fun. And I did that because I knew from my mother, I really kind of got in the brain of the narrator, Mary, who was based on my grandmother, by thinking of myself when I was 17 and 18 years old, how vulnerable and insecure I was. And then imagine if I had no family or, you know, uh, you know, had had there's something about motherlessness that I think really leaves a person quite unmoored, uh, especially a woman or a young woman or a girl. And so, um, mother motherhood, mothers is a very strong theme in this book. You know, Mary and Lillian as little girls, like the other orphans, they 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 talk and dream about their mothers and think they see their mothers' angels sometimes. And then when Mary meets. Dr. Vogel, her employer, Dr. Vogel becomes a very strong kind of mother figure, like a substitute mother for Mary. She's quite in awe of Dr. Vogel. Dr. Vogel is a very smart psychiatrist. And, you know, she's able to use that, uh, you know, I hate to say manipulation, but let's call it what it is. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's call it out. Yeah, it I is. mean, she is. She's a very, very, um, you know, I, anyway, there's a very complicated relationship that I loved developing in this novel between Dr. Vogel and Mary. And Mary and Lillian. It's a story about women. It's about women who are friends. There is a love story, and Mary does have a male friend, boyfriend. I had fun with that, too, but I really enjoyed uh, exploring what I think is more fascinating, which is the way women love their friends and the way the w- women love and need a mother and the way mothers who, you know, women who are denied the right to be mothers, that, that how how that must feel. Yeah. It's not their choice. So, you know, of course, that re- it's very resonant today in, yeah, a, yeah. in the United States that uh, women's r- reproductive rights are once again, and they will always be, in our, you know, political discourse, this was, a, you know, a different kind of, <laughs> these were women denied the right to be a mother. But basically, it's the same thing, just really that women aren't considered fully human enough to make the choices about, you know, these very private matters uh, themselves. Other, you know, other men have to make them for us. And so, you know, that was really in my mind while I was writing this, but I was also writing at a time when we, our country was having, you know, a very polarized uh, political problem or a lot of discourse. And the headlines from the 1920s and the 2020s were so similar. I couldn't even believe it because immigration was a big part of eugenics. We were, it was all about that really. And it was what was making people freak out here. And so on the one hand, all my friends were very, Everyone has people in their families on one side or the other. 
everyone was thinking this is the worst time in America, and it wasn't. I knew it wasn't because I was reading about it happening 100 right. years ago. The sad thing is we were still in it, but yeah, um, but it was kind of interesting that people didn't were. I, I just felt like glad that I knew, oh, no, this is not something new. It's just what I was most aware of was the thing that's worse now is the dog whistle thing, the, the insidious, the kind of, it's just below the surface. And a lot of people aren't even aware. I, I think when it was more overt, at least you mm-hmm. knew. <laughs> yeah, it was out there. Yeah. It was mainstream, whereas yeah. now it's not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You just said, Anne, that it took you six years to write the book. And so talk about timely, but you mustn't have known when you embarked on this journey that the whole Roe versus Wade argument, it like it, you've just ended up at the absolute perfect intersection, I if know. you will, where this is right at the top in terms of people discussing women's rights, women's reproductive rights specifically. Right. And boom, this book is coming out tomorrow. It's coming out tomorrow. And there, I mean, I could talk about that for so long. In my research, of course, I found a lot of, about people associate the time before we had the right to have abortions with, you know, women dying from botched abortions, but women died from men killing them. Theodore Dreiser wrote a book called An American Tragedy, and it was made into that great movie with Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Cliff called A Place in the Sun, I think. I think it's called A Place in the Sun. Mm -hmm. I've always loved that movie, but I read the book when I was researching this. And he wrote in the introduction, he, the reason he wrote it, he kept, he was noticing all these news items Uh, you know, clippings from around the country about young men who had been caught after murdering a girl that they got pregnant. So I think there's there's things that people don't consider. And I I don't want to come out on either side of this. I don't want people to hate me because they, you know, I believe one way or another about abortion because this book is not, no one in this book has an abortion. It's not about that. But more so, it's about um, how we had really no, very few rights. We had the right to vote starting in 1920. But until, I think it was in 1970 in the United States, a married woman couldn't have a credit card in her name. It had to be in her husband's name. If you were wealthy and you brought your wealth into a marriage, that was your husband's wealth then. It it was called a thing called coverture. When you married, you became, your husband was your legal guardian. You had the status of a child. So it really helped me understand this Dr. Vogel character at in my early drafts, she was a little too much of a villain. I, I really kind of, and I, I, and then I started reading about women of that time. I actually read a lot about Margaret Sanger, but I read about other uh, women. There weren't a lot of female doctors in that time. The doctor who ran the asylum where my mother worked was named Dr. Mary Wolf. She became a doctor in 1899. Many, most women didn't go to college in those days. She was a brilliant woman. She was a suffragist and she came from a wealthy family. She became a psychiatrist and she was writing public health kind of like dossiers or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, things for our elected officials, for our congressmen and our senators to make decisions on, um, you know, laws affecting our health of our public. But she wasn't allowed to vote. And if she had been married, she would have had the legal status of a child. Her husband would have been her guardian. That was the same with Margaret Sanger, by the way. Margaret Sanger, you know, had been vilified a bit recently. As people know, most people know she founded Planned Parenthood. And now people are upset because she was a eugenicist. And she was. And she had said things that were very, they were racist and unacceptable. Um, Absolutely. But Margaret Sanger she got her hands dirty. She, you know, she was an educated woman. She went down into the tenements in New York and she saw horrible, horrible poverty and anguish. And she wanted to help help these women have the same access to birth control that she and her wealthy educated friends had. They all knew about the rhythm method, but these women didn't, you know, they didn't really understand the basics of human biology. So she, I, I don't want to defend Margaret Sanger, but at one point I did realize that a, when she was doing all this really amazing work, speaking at Vassar and Wellesley, she was speaking in front of Congress. She couldn't vote at first. And then when she could vote, she was still, you know, in the eyes of a law, uh, she had the legal status of a child. Her husband was her guardian. Even after we had the vote in the United States, women couldn't serve on juries in some states until the 1960s. 
You know that movie, 12 Angry Men? They meant 12 Angry Men. (laughs) Yeah, they weren't talking 10 Angry Men and 2 Angry Women. No, exactly. So I think it's like, it was so recent. It's just in my grandmother's time, but it was so different. Um, The opportunities and the the actual pitfalls for a, a, a woman without money or family. Our country was a very treacherous place for young women at that time. You've now adopted, you love the process of historical fiction. Is there maybe some more in the future for you? Because I love the book. You do. But the whole concept (laughs) of learning so much through reading and talking to you is like, wow. Oh, yeah. Isn't learning learning so fun when you can actually see it through the eyes of the characters? Well, I've always been really very interested in history. When, I, when I'm writing, I always read nonfiction. I love to read um, history, especially American history. And yes, I, especially though this subject will never cease to fascinate me. Um, the, I I still every day find out something I didn't know the day before. I'm finished with my book. I I can't add or delete anything, and I you know that's over. But I I will continue to learn more about it, and because there's so much to learn. But yeah, I I actually found writing. I loved writing this book, and it's making me emotional now because it's coming out tomorrow. But um, I really loved writing it, and I loved kind of the framework that history provided the plot. So my books have been very character driven and plot is kind of a thing that I've kind of struggled with. But this, I had the structure of the times. My grandmother worked there in 1930. I decided to set it in 1927 because I didn't want the the Great Depression to, it just complicated it. Right. (laughs) It's like enough going on. Yeah, I got got that. But the history provided you with a structure it, it, sort of the bare bones of it, and then you got to dress it. Yes, and things were stranger than fiction. I couldn't make this stuff up. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But you got to focus on your love of the developing the characters and the tension between the characters. Right, and then I really got sucked into the book, and um, so the the story, you know, uh, then you know, once I knew these three main characters, I you know the the the, the story really started to write itself. But I did still have the you know so much uh, support with books and as I said, newspaper archives. Um, I'm on all these ancestry sites, and I just I love it. I love it. It's evident. Yeah, it's a brilliant piece of work. So. Oh! As we were talking about tomorrow, and you said you're getting emotional, what do you think tomorrow? I mean, you've you've published other books before, so what does it feel like tomorrow? I mean, do you get up early? Do you listen? Do you watch? Do you read reviews? Do you? um, In a second, I want to ask about your tour with the book, but but what does tomorrow maybe look like for you, being such a big day? Well. I guess, you know, early reviews have come in and they've been overwhelmingly positive, which was so exciting because it really was, I wasn't sure. My editor wasn't sure. We weren't sure if people would understand it, if they would be really, you know, turned off. And um, so I've been really, really pleased with the uh, reviews, but I haven't received all the reviews yet. There's still some reviews to come. I think maybe because I, even though I, I wasn't close to my grandmother, the main character really the facts in the book of her life really are based on the facts, the few facts I know about my grandmother. You know, she was, she was a ha- what they called a half orphan. She lived for a time with an aunt. She was very poor. And my mother one time tried to describe what she thought was wrong with her. And this is really sad, but she said, you know, and nobody ever loved her. And yeah. I think that's true. And I, and I don't fault my mother because her mother was so unwell that she wasn't a good mother to my mother. So, but gosh, that stuck with me. And it, and and then, so it helped me, I think, you know, I wanted Mary to be who I think my grandmother was. I've seen pictures of her when she was young. She was very pretty and she looked so sweet. I, I know she was a different person then, but I know inside that person was somebody who was very vulnerable and ve- had a lot of shame. And that's part of the story, as you know, there is some childhood trauma that involves a great deal of shame for Mary. And um, so... So I, I just, I don't know. So I guess maybe that's what it is. It, it's that, um, maybe because it's personal a little bit. I don't know. I don't know. Because it, it, it's, I mean, obviously it's a novel, but I feel, I guess it's just been a while. I just, 
I know after tomorrow, whatever people say, they say, if you don't like my book, it's fine. It's really not, but I'll say it is. But I, I just came across this, I looked for this poem and it was written like a hundred years or more ago by this poet, Anne, Anne Bradstreet. I'll send it to you if you want to link it on your Love. site. Yes, but it, thank she, you. It's, it's called um, a, a Letter from an Author to Her Book. She, it's about sending your book out into the world. And it, it, and, and she uses um, a lot of, it's a, it's a lot about, um, it's almost like having giving your baby to the world. And, and I was going to say, does it feel like giving birth? And then that's all a complicated conversation as it is, given the nature <laughs> of this of this particular book. And- Wow. Yeah. But there's something so personal for you in this. You know, it's funny. I don't think I had it so much with this book. All my other books, when I was writing them, I, ha- I always had dreams about my child falling, my child being made fun of. Like I, a child that's, I do have children. They're now, you know, adults, but a child that whose face is down and I can't get them out of the snow. And it's always about the book, the books in trouble. You know, it's, I'm having trouble writing the book. I don't know if that happened with this book, but, but definitely, yeah, I think artists do feel it's something you've made. You feel exposed and you feel, you know, it's embarrassing if you think it's, you think it's, it's good and other people don't. But I have yeah. to say with this one, I'm actually, I like it. If people hate it, I don't, I think I can live with it for some reason because I, um, you know, I put my all in it and, and I, I still, I kind of still stand by it today. Now watch tomorrow when I'm bawling my eyes out. Like, <laughs> the New York Times might say something terrible. About it. But today, um, I stand by the book. <laughs> this is like we should book another interview with you tomorrow at five o'clock. And it's like, okay, how are you feeling now? Yeah, <laughs> I know, exactly. Um, so, other than giving birth to this beautiful child oh, so called nice. the found, foundling, the foundling, let's start talk about, first of all, let's close this up a little bit more and talk about the tour because you're actually yes. going to go on tour. So yes. I saw the list of dates and places that you're going to go and, and what does that involve? So presuming we're all still safe to be able to move around, what, uh, what does a tour look like? Well, it's very, um, unfortunately, I, I, I'm very lucky that most of my friends had books that came out during COVID and they had mm. no live events. So they had virtual events. And of course, it really hurt independent booksellers. I'm a huge supporter of independent bookstores. I really like people to buy books from, I, 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 I mean, I want to support small businesses everywhere because they're going away and it's just, it's very sad. So um, in, you know, before COVID, a lot of independent bookstores made author events really help these bookstores. They brought people into the stores. They'd get a book signed. They'd buy other books. Mm-hmm. And then when they had to do these virtual events, I wondered how, you know, I was I didn't like the idea because I was often the co, you know, I would interview an author for, say, Powell's. I'm doing Powell's tomorrow night. But, you know, a big bookstore like Powell's Book in Portland, Oregon. And I think, well, I hope these people buy the book who are who are all watching online from Powell's and not from Amazon. I mean, I love Amazon. I don't, I don't want to get in trouble with anybody, but no, you don't. But but the but you they're not standing in the physical space, yeah. and, and and then picking it up and walking to the cash. They have the opportunity of looking for it elsewhere where maybe it would cost less or right. any of those reasons that they don't feel like going to the store or they can't go to the store. So it could come from another place, which right. doesn't maybe help the bookstore. So now I am for many bookstores on my tour. I'm their first live. I'm in June. They're opening for live events. So tomorrow night, uh, Tuesday, May thirty first, I will be doing a virtual event for Powell's. It'll be uh, eight o'clock Eastern time and uh, five o'clock Pacific time. Powell's time. Um, yep. <laughs> you can, in Canada, United States, anywhere in the world, I think, you can log on to powellsbooks.com. Uh, just Google Powell's Books, and you will be able to find a link there. Uh, my friend Lee Woodruff, who's an amazing author herself, is going to be in conversation with me. And we have a few special guests popping in. It's gonna. We're trying to make it like a fun virtual launch party. But that's my first event. And then the very next day, I start. I go to Cambridge to Harvard Bookstore. And uh, then I'm I'm going, you know, uh, mostly in the East Coast area. I'm doing several Pennsylvania ex- events, which I'm very excited about because it's a Pennsylvania book. Uh, Washington D.C. Um, anything. My my schedule is on www.annleary.com. 
I'm on Instagram and Larry. I keep posting as I'm told about all my events, but I love meeting, love meeting readers at events. And, and um, I bet they're going to, they, I, I imagine it would, people will flock to this I because hope so. <laughs> it, an opportunity, it's like, it's brand new again. We've, we've all forgotten so much around how incredible it is to be live and in person. I was in New York last week for my first live event with Condé Nast 110 people in the room, 49 people online. Wow. It was magic. And and so I can't even imagine how incredibly exciting it is going to be for you to be physically in a bookstore, especially in Pennsylvania. Have you actually, Anne, gone to Laurelton? Like, oh, you, yes. Yeah. You've stood on the grounds of this well, place? Well, I, I, you know, I, I found, about, found out about this when I was finishing my last novel, The Children. So I had to finish that novel. I'm not kidding. It was the middle of the winter. You don't want to go to, I live in, uh, you know, I lived in Connecticut then. I live in New York State now, but Pennsylvania, all of this area, it's treacherous driving. It was like December. I got in my car and I drove right to the place and it was deserted. And there's a big fence and a sign that says no trespassing and people driving by with gun racks on the back of their truck. And, um, it was. It's a very rural, very beautiful part of the country still. Um, but I, I could see one of the buildings. But what I then did was I went to the county clerk's office. I looked up records that I already knew about. About they were these habeas corpus um, cases where families tried to get their girls out and they couldn't. You know, they tried to prove. Mm. Them. My, my, she's not feeble minded, but she was. Turns out she was a really good milker at the dairy at the asylum, and she right. just wasn't let go. So there were um, so those things I wanted to follow up on, and then I went to Harrisburg, and even people in the United States who, who don't live in Pennsylvania, so many people think that Philadelphia is the capital of Pennsylvania, but I'm sure you probably know that Harrisburg is the capital, and Harrisburg is an um, I love Harrisburg, and I actually really love Pennsylvania, but um, I, I went to the state archives in in Harrisburg several times. They had some records that were available to the public. Most asylums for the, you know, the insane, for feeble-minded people, as they were called, purged records. I know so mm. many people, I, I know so many people who had had a grandparent who was an orphan, A. It wasn't that unusual because of diseases and poverty. A lot of people were very poor in those days. Um, so a lot, I, a lot of people had only one parent and they would live in an orphan home because the, uh, the one parent had to work. So I found out Many people I uh, I knew said, "Oh yeah, my grandmother was an orphan too," and there's no records, and so that is sad. But there was there was seemed to be some kind of most of these places with questionable histories. I'm not kidding. It's almost it became a joke every time I'd call. I would say, "Was it a flood or a fire?" And they'd say, "Oh, it was a fire. How'd you know? Or a flood? How'd you know?" <laughs> <laughs> so there's not. I I still don't know how my grandmother got this job. I know she worked there because it's in a federal census record. I know she worked there because it was in the newspaper record. You know, it was in the announcement of her wedding to my grandfather that she was an employee there. But, you know, I I wish I knew more about it. But I've talked to people who worked there like in the 90s before it closed. And I've I've been really touched by how devoted they were to the individuals Mm. who they took care of quite well. And there was there's actually a Laurelton State Village Facebook group. And we I, I had taken a bunch of pictures from these records and some of them had never seen them. So it's been kind of fun. And I hope some of them will make the trip to Harrisburg. And I hope later in the summer to do an event close in Lewisburg, which is closer to the asylum. That'd be amazing. That'd yeah. be amazing. And yeah. I hope that I'm sure they're all going to be buyers of the book. Is it, I mean, yes, it's it's not Laurelton, but it's fashioned after Laurelton. And so I, I think that they would be so interested to read it. I'm looking forward to going back. Uh, I really, really, I, I, as I said, I went there several times. So, Anne, what does, what does the word bravery mean to you in terms of just gut reaction on that? Because Breaking Brave is all about bravery. And so... For you personally, what does that mean? Wow. So, yeah, I, I love that that is your podcast. And I was reading a little bit about your podcast. And, oh, gosh, well, bravery has been such an important word in in the United States, you know, in the last eight to ten years, politically. Um, people, today it feels very brave to be outspoken about your beliefs because you might get hurt. Someone might hurt you, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, um, yeah, speaking out. I'm going to talk less about 
you know, true bravery of we actually today is our uh, our Memorial Day, so we honor the yes, memory. Is. Yeah, so we yes, honor the is. memory of our very brave. Um, yes, you know, grand. You know, both of my grandfathers served in the Second World War very bravely, and um, you know, so we mem- we remember those who fought and who who we lost, and so um, those are very brave people indeed. Um, and right now we're in a very sad moment after this another horrific um, school shooting. Again, I'll get very emotional if I talk about it. But, you know, the bravery of those parents is something that we'll, uh, we will never understand. The bravery of, you know, facing another day for them. But now on a more light <laughs> note, because it'll make me very sad if I continue on that thing. Um, I often get emails from, or I meet people who are trying to write a book or they're trying, they're trying to, or they're trying to be creative. They have a story to tell and they're, they're very anxious. And it seems that what people struggle with the most is worry about the the, the critic, the inner critic, the, Mm. um, and then ultimately what if they finish it and then there'll be other critics. And so it is a brave thing to create something and, and then to present it and let, People make of it what they will and feel like you can you can stand that. You can stand the storm that's coming. But it's also a thing that is sort of the theme of eugenics in the book is don't think of the reader as this scary other. If you're writing a poem or a story or an essay, write it as if you're writing it to your best friend who gets you. You have to trust that the reader gets you. And that once I figured out how to do that, that's what I do. You know, I, I, you, and, and I can always tell when a writer trusts their reader because they're usually very funny. David mm-hmm. Sedaris's new book just came out today. He doesn't have to over explain. He, he knows we get it. He knows we think, he knows we're, we're smart. So I feel that that's, that's not bravery. It's more a sense of feeling in tune with one another, kind of trusting the mm-hmm. audience, trusting your fellow man. I had never thought of it that way. And I've never had, and authors say, write it like you were writing it to your best friend. Assume that the reader gets you, and right. understands you, and feels you. And that's a brilliant flash. That's yes. a brilliant flash. It really well, is. The reason I came upon that, my first book was a memoir, and it was composed of letters I wrote to my best friend when I was stuck in London where my son was born prematurely. And when I started writing it, she had moved away, but she sent me all these letters and I, I went, that was the most traumatic time of my life. And how was I so funny? I, these were so funny, but my friend is funny and I wanted her to laugh. And yep. so I wrote the book as if I were writing more letters to her. And then that was what I did with most of my writing. And I think, I feel like when I read certain authors, I feel that. And is there any thought that this might, um, the founding might become a film? Well, we'll see. I do, according to my agent, there have been some People have reached out and asked if it, you know, what's going on? Has it been option? Speaking of films, um, my book, The Good House, this is also something that never happens. My book, The Good House, was filmed in Canada, in um, Nova Scotia, several before wow. COVID, years ago. But it was held up by COVID. It was held up by all these things. Books, in, your new book never comes out when the adaptation of an old book comes, ever. It doesn't, you can't make it happen. Everyone wants it to happen. Three weeks ago, I, n- I had no idea when The Good House was going to be in theaters. A week ago, I found out it's cu- it's debuting at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York on June 16th, in the middle of this <gasps> book tour. It stars Sigourney Weaver and Kevin Klein, And it's the one day in June that I didn't have a book event. It was crazy. So that... The stars aligned. It was crazy. The stars indeed aligned. So we'll see. So yes, I've had that book adapted. And then I had a modern love essay I wrote was also adapted into what this part of the series. So um, I would love to see, I, I love these characters so much. And I do think especially the Dr. Vogel character would be very appealing to act an actor. I mean, from, she could be anywhere from, you know, 40 to 60, really. She's a very attractive, very beautiful monster. <laughs> In some ways, yeah. I really don't think people write women very well, and I don't. I don't think actresses. We have so many talented actresses of a certain age, and people don't always write the most exciting parts for women. Villains are always the villain. Always is the best part, and they're always usually men. So, 
I mostly thought of Dr. Vogel's character when I was, you know, having the fantasy that someday it might be on the screen. But I really like writing books, so it's never adapted. I'm very lucky to be a published author. I know I am, and I, I'm very grateful. Well, we're very lucky to have you. How can we support you, Anne, in terms of, you know, I'm going to ask you perhaps to repeat website, Insta, Twitter, all those things that you really do. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Anne Leary. And there's no E on Anne. It's A-N-N-L-E-A-R-Y. Um, and so I'll be posting all my different events. I don't right now have any Canadian destinations on my tour, but I love Toronto and I would love to go up there. I will be doing more than one virtual event. And those are always fun to watch. And I, oh, here's a very important thing. Anyone who's in a book club, you can go on my website and there's actually a form you can fill out and I will visit your book club, but I will be happy to, um, if I can, man, you know, if I can fit into my schedule, come out virtually zoom into your book club for a good 20 minutes or so and talk to you about any of my books that you choose for that book club. I've been doing this. I used to do Skype book clubs and I will do, you know, real book clubs of people I know, but I love book clubs. If you're in a book club, just know all authors appreciate you. We love that you have a book club, that you choose a book and you all read it. And we, and I'm not the only author. If, you go, if you're reading a book now that you love, check your author's website. She might also visit your book club, but or he, or he. <laughs> I think that's amazing. And I didn't know you did that. I didn't know authors did that. Yeah. I don't belong to a book club currently. But right. what an incredible thing. And so I think you'll get a lot of people filling out this form and asking you to pop in. Well, I would love to meet you and your club. <laughs> well, Anne, this has been a complete and total, total delight. We wish you every success You're tomorrow. You're so kind. You're so very kind. Yes, and it'll be in, in bookstores everywhere in Canada tomorrow as well. And um, I will send you that poem I told you about at the very beginning, because that's what I'm feeling right now. That's Fabulous. I would love it. So thank you for being here. Every success tomorrow. And please keep doing what you're doing because you are a gift. Well, I'm pleased you had me on your podcast because I feel so much braver right now. I'm not kidding. I'm not saying it because of that. I, you gave me your your kind words have made me feel 100% braver than I did when I first signed on here. So thank you. Thank you again, Anne. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.